Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding on the bottom of page 42. He says to better understand the difference between the tzaddik and the benani. The benani is the Jew who is perfect, behaviorally is perfect. And that is the average Jew, the simplest Jew. Every Jew has the potential to lead a disciplined, moral, ethical, spiritually upright, wholesome life, and a life filled with integrity. No one has to compromise on even one iota of their morality, ethics, and integrity. That is the benini, but the tzaddik is the Jew who doesn't even have a yetzahar, someone who doesn't even have an evil inclination, someone who's egoless. He says to better understand the difference between the tzaddik and the benini, first he has to give an introduction. On the bottom of page 42. However, the explanation of the matter so that we better understood the levels of tzaddik and benini, as well as the various gradations within their ranks, is to be found in the light of what Rabbi Chaim Vital wrote in Shar HaKadusha and in Eretz Chaim, that every Jew, whether righteous or wicked, possesses two souls. Though the verse speaks of an individual Jew as indicated by the singular form of the word Ruach, spirit, in the preceding phrase, when the spirit of a man which emanates from me will be humbled. The plural term a plural term souls is nevertheless used, indicating that every Jew possesses two souls. So he's talking about one individual, and he says, and then he goes on to say, I have given that individual two souls. And the Alter Rebbe is telling us here is that when we talk of the two souls, which he's going to describe, one is the godly soul, and one is the animal soul the ego soul. So this understanding of the two souls revolutionizes our whole understanding of the two forces within men. It's not just that we have a yetzah tov and a yetzah hara, a good inclination and a, and a negative inclination. But it's much deeper than that. We actually have two souls, a tale of two souls. The in other words, it's not just a question of behavior. Are we doing the right thing, or are we doing something right, or are we doing something wrong? It's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than just behavior. You're talking about a soul. It's a, it's a whole, it's, by its very being, you have a holy soul. By its very being is holy and godly. And then you have a soul who's by its very being is already the opposite of godliness, the antithesis of godly, the soul that comes from the other side, from the shell. So it's not that the person did something wrong. Just the soul by its very being is already the opposite and the antithesis of holiness, while the godly soul, the Jewish soul, by its very being, is godly and holy. So this radically trans- changes our understanding. We talk about good and evil. We're not just talking about behavior. I did something good or I did something evil. Even before I do anything, 
good or evil, we have two souls within us. One soul by its very being is holy and godly. And one soul by its very being is egotistical, which is the opposite, the antithesis of godliness. And now he explains. There are two neshefa, two souls and life forces. One soul originates in the klipa and sitra akra. Klipa means a shell or peel. God created forces which conceal the godly life force found in all creation as a peel covers and conceals fruit. Sitra akra means the other side, the side of creation that is the antithesis of holiness and purity. The two terms are generally synonymous. But not, preci- not specifically synonymous. They do <clears throat> connote two different aspects. One is a shell, klipa. The materialistic world, the material is a shell. The shell serves a function. The fruit, the shell of the fruit, protects the fruit. It allows the fruit to grow. And then you remove the shell and you access the fruit. So the shell is a protection of the fruit. The shell grows with the fruit. It even precedes the fruit. And it enables the fruit to grow. But the shell is a means to an end. When you remember that materialism is a means to an end, then it's something positive. It's something very positive. There's nothing wrong with materialism, per se. If a person knows, remembers that it's a means to an end, then you could do wonderful things with materialism, with wealth, with materialism, with influence, with power. All these things are tools that you can do wonderful things with them. As long as you remember that they're a means to an end. The problem begins when a person confuses the shell with the fruit. Instead of eating the fruit, the person starts eating shells. (laughs) When you eat the fruit, the fruit nourishes you, it nurtures you. When a person focuses on the inside, on the inner, not on the external, on the material, on the outside, but on the inner, then the, 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 the connection strengthens you, it nourishes you, you feel nurtured, you feel nourished. And it's healthy, it's wholesome. But when a person confuses the shell for the fruit, take for example the shell of the peanut, the shell totally covers up on the fruit. You don't see the inside. Unless you crack through the, the, the shell, you, don't even, you can look at the outside, you don't even know that there's an inside. When you look at the shell of a grape, you can see through it. So you know that it's skin deep, but you can see through it and you, you see the fruit that's underneath it. But then you have the shell, a thick shell, that totally covers up and blocks the inside. And you don't even know there's an inside. So when a person can live through, lives his life where materialism becomes the end in itself, and a person defines himself by materialistic definitions, by wealth, money, power, fame, all the surface, superficial, external definitions, then that person is living on a junk, junk food diet. There's nothing there that to nourish that person. The person throws out the fruits and just eats the shell. That's where the problem begins. When you confuse the material, the means, and that becomes the end, and that's how you define yourself. You don't have any deeper self-definition. You live for, not for the inside, but you live for the outside, by what you possess, external which of course can never ever nourish you or satisfy you because there's nothing there. It's just a shell. There's no content. 
If you ignore the content of life, the inner content, and you just define yourself by the external, the superficial, it can never ever possibly satisfy you. And the more you indulge, the hungrier you become, the hungrier you get. So that's the shell. That's the analogy of the shell. This world, this materialistic world that we live in is like a shell. It covers up. It covers up in the divine energy. You don't notice the divine energy. You don't sense the divine energy. You don't see the divine energy. You see life, you see energy, but you don't see the miracle of life. You don't notice the divine miracle of life. Where does life come from? Life comes from within. Life is a miracle. So you, we see, but there is a veil. There's a cover-up. There's a shell that blocks. And we don't see. All we see is the shell. And we take things at face value. So when the world becomes a shell and the world hides and conceals its inner content and meaning and purpose, then the world becomes a, a dark place, becomes an opaque place, becomes a world which goes contrary to, to the truth. Because the truth is that material is important. It's a shell. It's a container. It's a body. But the body has a soul. The world has a soul. It has a divine spark, a divine energy that's creating it and sustaining it and animating it. So as long as a person sees through the shell and sees, sees the inside, then the shell is very beneficial. When God created the world, this world was a shell, but it was a see-through shell. Then the world was a Garden of Eden, a world of pleasure, because everything was in its right place. Materialism was a means to an end. There was clarity. There was a connection. You saw a tree. You saw its root. You sensed the Creator. You sensed the Divine. You saw life, you sensed the divine miracle. So everything in this world was see-through. When everything in this world is see-through and everything is in its right, its right position, then this world is a Garden of Eden. There's nothing wrong. Materialism is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful tool. You can do tremendous things with, with, with the body and with materialistic things that we possess. But when a person starts defining himself by his materialism, then the world becomes a shell and it becomes split off and disconnected from its source because what creates the shell? It's the fruit that brings the shell. It's the inside that brings the shell. If there's no inside, the shell has no meaning. The shell... So it splits off. When a person focuses just on the shell, it splits off and disconnects from its own source. You disconnect the world from its own source and the world becomes in conflict. The shell becomes in conflict with the fruit and it clashes and therefore the, you end up with this chaos and this inner chaos which characterizes so much of life. So this is the analogy that the Kabbalists use of a shell. When this world is the opposite of holiness, the world is a shell. And then he calls it the other side. The other side is anything that's not holy. Anything that's not holy is automatically the other side. There is no neutral. Either it's holy, it's connected to reality, to godliness, or if it's not connected to godliness, it's not connected to reality, automatically it's the other side, and it's already a distortion of reality. That's why in Judaism, we never respected genius per se, creativity per se. 
In Judaism, we always respected the godly person. If a person is a genius, but he's morally corrupt and degraded, we have no respect for him. Because to the Jew, there's only one reality. And that's the reality of Hashem. Anything that's connected with Hashem is real, is good and real and genuine and wholesome. Anything that's disconnected from Hashem is repulsive. And the creative genius who's disconnected, who's egotistical and disconnected from his own source is even more repulsive. Because where does creativity come from? The creative person should be the closest to God. Because when you have the ability to express creativity, you should connect, make the connection. Where does all creativity come from? All creativity comes from the Creator. So that should bring you closer to God. Instead of, instead of distancing you from God and becoming more egotistical and arrogant, it should humble you. Moshe was the most creative person. He was the most humble person. Because the more creative he was, Maimonides and Moses and all the great Jewish leaders, the more brilliant they were, the more genius they were, the more creative they were, the more humble they were. Because the closer they came to God, the more they connected, they, it, it connected them with the ultimate source of creativity. And therefore they were totally humble. So in Judaism, anything that's connected with God is good, is holy. Anything that's disconnected from God, it could be the most brilliant art or music or, or even prophecy. Bilam was a prophet, but he was not a holy person. We have no respect for people like that. Either it's connected to holiness and to humility and to humbleness and to genuineness and to truth. And if it's not, it's automatically called the other side, the opposite, the antithesis of holiness and godliness. And it's already distorted. And we don't trust it. You know there's something, something not good already. Because it's already a distortion. Continue. It is this nefesh which originates in the Kleba and Sitra Atra that is clothed in the blood of a human being, giving life to the body. As it is written, for the nefesh of the flesh that sustains physical and corporal life is in the blood. So where is this soul? This soul is in the life of a is in the blood of a human being. What did the person do? Did the person do anything wrong? No, he's just living. What's wrong with living? All he wants to do is live. But there's already something wrong. What's wrong? And that's called ego. The I. What is the most powerful drive, most powerful force in life? Appropriation. Self-preservation. The will to live. Self-preservation. Ego. Everything that exists wants to continue its existence. Will fight, will do anything they can to continue its own existence. So what is the motivation in life? What is the central theme of my life? I. Ego. I. Well, what's wrong with that? Can have a healthy ego. What's wrong with ego? What's wrong with the I? There's one little problem. Precludes God. Because the truth is, who is the only I? Who is the, what is the ultimate reality? The ultimate reality is the reality of God. The reality of God means that there is no other reality but God. God is a total, absolute reality. There is no space or place for anything outside of God. The truth is, nothing really exists outside of God. 
There's nothing separate from God, nothing outside of God. We only exist because God is creating us this very moment. We don't have any inherent reality, any independent reality. Nothing is the way it seems. It seems that our reality is solid, is real. And God's reality is questionable. The truth is just the opposite. God's reality is real. God is. There is, no, no, there is nothing else, really. Our reality is not what it seems to be. We exist only because God is creating us this very moment. We don't have any independent reality. So the truth is there is no other reality but God. That is the only truth, the ultimate truth, the absolute truth. So, the moment there is a, an I, a passionate will to live and to survive and to exist as an I, an independent entity, separate and disconnected from God, a person can go through his entire life with a very healthy ego. And he doesn't think once about God. What motivates him? His, his life is egocentric. It's not God-centered. It's egocentric. It's all about me. Self-preservation. Self-preservation has many forms, as, as he'll discuss in a moment. Self-preservation doesn't only mean to survive. Self-preservation also means to expand your existence. For one person, it's the motivation for power. For another person, it's the motivation for pleasure. Everyone has, for another person, it's, it's, it's the motivation to accumulate a lot of money. For another person, it's the motivation to make a mark in this world. For another motivation, it's even to be religious and even mystical. But ultimately, the driving force behind life is ego, ego-centric. What can I do to expand my being, to continue my being and my existence? To procreate, to continue my existence. So ultimately, it's all about the I. And he says, that alone, the I, the soul that wants to live, that's hot-blooded and passionate, that, that courses through our blood and just wants to live and self-preserve and continue, that is already the other side. That is already the shell that's covering up and the truth, it's already a distortion. It's already an untruth. Because the ego senses life begins and ends with me, with I. The ego doesn't acknowledge that it has a a source, a root, a cause. As far as the ego goes, we sense ourselves as, as an absolute reality. Emotionally we sense, we always existed, we always will continue to exist. That's why we cannot accept death. Because as far as we experience the I, ourselves, we are, because we are. We don't need any justification, we don't need any reason. My being, that is my whole raison d'etre, just myself, my being, preserving myself, continuing myself. I am the beginning and the middle and the center, the beginning, the middle, the center, and the beginning and end of all. Totally self-absorbed, totally self-centered. And it comes naturally and instinctively. Six billion people in hundreds of cultures all grow up with the same sense, with the same sense of ego, of I. It's natural, instinctive. You don't have to go to school to acquire this ego, this sense of I. It's the most natural thing in the world. This is the soul that he calls the animal soul. This is the soul that's in the blood, the passion, the passion to live, the will to live, to survive, to to, um, self-preserve. To expand. 
continue your existence. And that is already the other side. It's already disconnected. It's already a distortion. Because your life is not about connecting with Hashem. It has nothing to do with God. It's me. Myself and I. And that's already a distortion. Because the truth is, the reality is, the simplest, truest reality is, that the only true reality is God. There is no other reality. God is an absolute, total, all, all. There's nothing outside of God. There's nothing else but God. Nothing else exists. We are not separable from God. God, we are contained with it. God contains us. We don't contain God, but God contains us. So the true being would be the divine soul, which we'll describe next week, describe in next chapter. The divine soul is God-centered. Its entire being is centered and focused on the truth that there's no other reality but God. And it seeks and it senses the godliness within everything and everywhere. And no space is empty of God. While the drive that drives all human beings is ego. Healthy ego. But it's all about I. And that's already what he calls, that is what he calls the other side. Or the klipa. And this is a very novel interpretation to the whole definition of good and evil. When the rabbis had, were forced to translate the Torah into 70 languages by Ptolemy, they fasted. It was a tragic day because there's no way you could translate the Torah into any language. Not because it's difficult to translate any language authentically, but because the concepts in Judaism don't exist in any language. Take, for example, the concepts of good and evil. How are we going to translate the concepts of good and evil? When the concepts of good and evil in Judaism are so subtle, that the Kabbalah discusses are so subtle, that the concept doesn't even exist in any other language, in any other culture. We're going to learn here at the end of the chapter, he quotes the Talmud, the Talmud says that the soul of non-Jews are are evil. What they do is only for themselves. Now, this is enough to make, to make the rabbis cry because it's a false translation. Because first you have to define what does the Torah mean when the Torah says evil. The same Torah that says that the soul of a non-Jew is evil is the same Torah that says that, an evil, that a tree is evil. If you'll explain to me what the Torah means by calling a tree evil, then we'll be able to explain what we mean that the soul of the non-Jew or the good deeds that he does is called a sin. The rabbis cried when they translated because there's no way. How can you translate? We're talking about such subtle concepts. A concept that doesn't exist in any other culture. What are we defining as evil? What are we defining as good? Good and evil is not a, a Hitler versus a nice a Mother Teresa. That's not our definition of good and evil. We're talking about a whole different concept. He says here that the soul in man, the soul that wants to live, the soul that's egotistically motivated and driven, that wants to preserve itself, that wants to live, and the soul that's in the blood of man, that wants to continue to live and expand his existence, he calls that evil. Did I do anything wrong? No. Did I say anything wrong? No. 
Did I think anything wrong? No. Behaviorally, I didn't do anything wrong. But the mere being, my mere being, existing, wanting to continue my own existence, this he calls evil. This is a revolutionary understanding of the word evil. What is the definition of evil? Definition of good is, good is anything that's rooted and connected to the, to the truth. The ultimate, absolute, ultimate truth, which is that there is no other reality but God. A truth that's connected, a life that's constantly connected to this reality is good. A world in which this reality is transparent and manifest is a good world, is the Garden of Eden. When God created the world, when Adam was created and he became aware and self-conscious for the first time, what was he conscious of? He wasn't conscious of self. He had no consciousness of self. Him and Chava walked around naked. They were unselfconscious. There was no shame. There was nothing to be ashamed of. They were totally unselfconscious. What were they conscious of? They were adults. What were they conscious of? One thing. They were conscious of godliness. They looked, in, they looked at the world. They saw an animal. They saw the creator. They saw a tree. They saw the hand of God, the creator. They sensed godliness wherever they looked and everything they saw, they sensed godliness. Godliness was palpable. They looked at themselves, at their own life. What did they see? The miracle of life. The divine. Life comes from within. So they were conscious, but not self-conscious. They were godly conscious. And they brought that awareness to the entire existence. Doesn't that, doesn't that raise the question of why they were tempted then? If you're so connected with Hashem, that, that you see Hashem in everything, you should be fulfilled in everything. You shouldn't have any need for anything else. It's curiosity. And they were seduced by the snake, who was a quite, a, quite a character, mm-hmm. sneaky character. And he seduced them, and they were curious. And he misled them. They thought that it would not have an impact on them, that the knowing good and evil would not have an impact on them, and not realizing that it would have a tremendous impact on them. It would change them. Um, so they were seduced, they were misled, and, and ultimately their curiosity got the best of them. But the, the moment they ate from the tree, they became self-conscious. Suddenly they knew. Not that suddenly they became wise. That w- it wasn't the reward, it was a punishment. It was a consequence. They became self-conscious. Suddenly the world became split, disconnected. The world became opaque. It became a shell like a peanut that covered up on the inside. And the moment they became egotistical and self-conscious, they became aware of their nakedness, of their shame. When they realized how a person could abuse something so special, like sexuality and love, which is unconditional, and, and people could abuse it, and something so special people can treat so cavalierly, they were ashamed, they were embarrassed of how the results of the ego, when the ego, when a person becomes egotistical, how far, how disconnected you can become to your own truth. And they were ashamed, and they had to cover their shame. That's why from that, that point on we wear clothes to cover up in our shame, you know, with a sense of modesty. So the but in a, in a good world, in a perfect world, a world in which godliness is transparent, 
this world is a garden of Eden. But the moment the person became egocentric and ego-conscious and became conscious of the I and the drive in life became self-preservation, not about God-centered and connecting with God and just being like God's agent, a God's tool, a God's expression, God's hands and feet. Instead, we become an independent, split-off, disconnected being whose goal in life is to preserve I, nothing to do with God, that's already a lie, that's already a distortion. So when you look at a tree today, I see a beautiful tree, I don't see God. That's already a distortion, that's already a lie. I don't see a creator, I don't see the creative energy, I don't see the divine force that's creating this tree at this very moment. That's already a lie, a distortion. That's what the Torah means in the most subtlest sense what we call evil. Evil in the sense that anything that's I, that's not God-centered, but it's I-centered, is already a distortion. Because what is the motivation, the driving force behind everything that exists in this physical, material world, from the amoeba, to the tree, to the animal, to the person? It's ego. Self-preservation. That's already a lie. It's already a distortion. In the Jewish way of thinking, that's called evil. It's a cover-up. It's a con. It's a disconnect. And in the same sense, the Talmud uses the same language that the soul of a non-Jew is also motivated by the same thing. The soul of every human being is motivated, of a healthy human being, is motivated by self-preservation, by ego, by expanding your ego. That could, that's true of the religious person, of the mystic, and that's true of the person seeking power, money, fame, or just wants to continue to live and survive. Ultimately, they're all motivated by the same thing, ego. How that ego expresses itself, you have many variations, depending on the person and the personality and the character. Some people are very hard-charged and motivated and driven. Other people are more calm and relaxed, as we'll learn in a minute. But ultimately, the common thread behind everyone is ego, I, self-preservation. And that's what he calls the other side, the shell, or the negative, the animal soul within us, the ego soul. Just by its being. It didn't do anything wrong. But its very being, its very essence... It's very reason for being and motivation and drive. It's very center, it's very core, is already evil, is already a disconnected, is already a distortion, is already a lie. We're off to a, a wrong style. We have reality all distorted already. It's all distorted, veiled, covered up, and we're lost. If we only had this soul, we would be lost. We're already off, to, off on a wrong start. We're living our life. You know, we're climbing the wrong trail. I'm, I'm confused now, because isn't the opposite death? If, if, you're, if, 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 you're, if you want to survive, if you want to live, if you want to... It, it's the opposite death. I mean, so again, there's nothing wrong as long as the, the drive to live, the will to live, is only a means to an end. It's a shell that serves the purpose of having a healthy body in order to enable you to serve God and to be connected with that truth. So, of course, you have to be healthy, you have to have a healthy body, and you have to be financially stable, and you have to have all of these things. But these are all means to an end. But what is the theme in your life? What is the goal in your life? What is the focus in your life? It's like a book. A book can have thousands of details and characters and events, but there's one theme that brings it all together. There's one thread that brings it all together. So the thread, the theme of a Jew's life is, if the theme in a Jew's life is God-centered, and everything in my life is here to help me 
serve that purpose. Everything. Whether it's sleeping or eating or exercising, everything that I do ultimately is here to serve that one goal, that one common thread that connects it all, which is to connect, to connect with the reality of Hashem. Then the shell becomes elevated because it's all, it, it serves a purpose. The shell serves a very vital function. When God created the world, the shell was, was good. The shell was part of the Garden of Eden. The material served a, as a means to an end, but it was very clear, this is a means, this is an end. Then the means is elevated, and the means serves a beautiful function. The means doesn't, it doesn't block the inside. On the contrary, it's like a grape. You see through it. It covers, it protects, it enables you to grow the fruit, and the fruit should flourish. But what happens is, as a result of Adam's sin, when he became self-conscious, is that the the shell became an end in itself. The material, the ego, the drive for self-preservation, that became, that became the end in itself. I look at a tree, I just see the will to live and self-preservation. I don't see godliness at all. Unless you really contemplate and meditate and reflect, you know, it doesn't point its finger to God. You walk down the streets, it doesn't point its finger to God. You see life, you don't make the connection, the link to, to the divine source of life. You just see life and passion and energy. So there's a disconnect. So the whole world is covered with this veil, a shell. The world became a shell, a cover-up, a conjure, a distortion. And that's a result of this soul. This is the soul, the animal soul, the ego. So what he's saying here, it's much deeper. It's not just that the behavior is wrong. Even before you do anything wrong, just the whole foundation is wrong. The whole core is wrong. The whole essence is wrong. The whole foundation, the underpinning drive and motivation of, in the blood, you want to live, and the passion to live and to expand your being and your existence and to express yourself and express your existence without any higher, without any higher consciousness, that's already a distortion. There's something wrong right, right here. So this is this is a very very revolutionary understanding of of the we talk about evil inclination or positive inclination. We're not even talking about the inclination to do something wrong, immoral, unethical. But just the whole foundation, the whole I is already suspect, is already distorted. And now he says. Within every person, this ego could manifest and express itself in many different forms, depending on the personality and the character. And like he'll say, that we know that classically the world is divided into four categories. You have solids, the earth. You have liquids, water. You have gases, air. And then you have fire, energy. That basically covers, covers everything. And different, various combinations of these. So what's true in the physical is also true in the spiritual. That in the human personality, you also have four different types of personalities. You have those who are more associated with solids, you have those who are more associated with gas, more associated with, uh, with liquid, and those more associated with fire and energy. And all of these four different expressions, personalities and characteristics, are different ways, are different people express the same thing, express their egos and the desire to live and preserve themselves. Third paragraph on page 44. From this nefesh stem all the evil characteristics deriving from the four evil elements within it. Just as the four physical elements of fire, air, water, and earth are the foundation of all physical entities, so too is this nefesh comprised of four 
corresponding spiritual elements. Since they derive from klipa and evil, they themselves are evil, and from them in turn one's evil characteristics come into being. Namely, anger and pride emanate from the element of fire, which rises upwards. Once ignited by anger and pride, a man, like fire, soars aloft. Pride is the state of considering oneself superior to others. Anger, too, is an offshoot of pride. Would a person not be proud, he would not be angered when someone defied his will. Okay, so you have a person who expresses his ego, a person who's a type A, hard-charging, motivated, ambitious, a leader, and this is a person who suffers from what we call a superiority complex. (laughs) He believes that he's superior to everyone else, smarter than everyone else, better than everyone else, um, superior to everyone else, and therefore he's a man with tremendous pride. Never mind what King Solomon said, that the prideful person is the biggest fool. We meet some people who are, really are brilliant and smart, head and shoulders above other people, but they're so foolish, they don't see their own faults. They're the only person in the world who doesn't see their glaring faults. They're so unpleasant. They have such unpleasant characteristic traits. They're so horrible people, such mean people, horrible people. They're the only ones, they're so smart, for all their smartness, they don't realize their own faults. They don't realize how uncouth they are, how, e- how offensive they are, how egotistical they are. And, but they're blind. They see everyone else's faults. But when it comes to their own faults, they simply are oblivious, clueless. That's a, that's a matter of pride. Their pride doesn't allow them to see simple truths that, the, that everyone else could see and notice. So for all their brilliance and all their smartness, they're sometimes the world's biggest fools. But that's the way they express their arrogance and their ego is expressed through arrogance, pride, and like fire goes upwards. So they, they inflate their own self-value and their own worth and they feel their self-value and their worth very strongly. They have a very healthy sense of their specialty. If you have any doubt, they'll be the first to tell you how special they are and how unique they are. And, uh, and um, they have a very healthy sense of self, very strong sense of ego, a very strong sense of self. And that's the, the, uh, you know, the rich man's uh, ego. The, um, the powerful per- person, the rich person the man of pride, the man of anger. Um, anger itself is like fire. It's like he burst out in anger, like flame. And it's also a result of pride. He bunches the two together, pride and anger, because um, anger is also a result of pride. A person gets angry, doesn't have his way. A person who's humble, okay, so I, so I didn't get my way. So a person insulted me. Okay, it's not the end of the world, so what? It's not the first, not the last. But a person whose pride, how dare you insult me, and how dare you, you know, I don't get my way, and the person just explodes in anger. So it's all an expression of pride. So this is one person's ego. One person's ego expresses itself through excessive pride and um, excessive anger. That's his peckle. That's his challenge in life. Then you have another person... The appetite for pleasures emanates from the element of water, for water promotes the growth of all kinds of pleasure-giving things. The ability of water to make pleasurable things, pleasurable things grow indicates that concealed within it is the element of pleasure. 
Water is very calm. The person who's steeped in pleasure, very calm, very cool. But his life, he's immersed in pleasure. He lives for fun. He lives for delight, for pleasure. There are people who eat, but there are people who delight, luxuriate in their appetites. Not just, they, they savor every morsel of food. There are people who drink wine, but there are people who really savor every, every the aroma and the taste. They really luxuriate in it. Other people, they don't care about materialistic things. I eat because I have to eat. I eat. I don't care what I eat. It makes no difference to me. I just eat to be healthy. You know, I other people, they, they spend hours. It's, it's a whole to-do, a whole experience. Every morsel of food. So they, they luxuriate in materialism. It's, it's, they, they love life. They want to live life. They want to enjoy life to the maximum. And they live for pleasure. They live for pleasure. They're very calm people, very nice people. They don't get angry. That's not their issue. Anger, pride, that's not their issue. But don't get in the way of their fun. <laughs> then you'll see what anger is really all about. <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, in the olden days, the yeshiva boys didn't have much to eat. And uh, they would eat, uh, people would bring them bread. I mean, it was, it was, if they were lucky, they went to eat in someone's home and they had some meal. One day, this rich Jew dropped off at the yeshiva. He donated a few turkeys. You can imagine the boys got so excited they haven't had a piece of meat, a piece of flesh. In months, they were all excited. And the wealthy person was a little taken aback. He says, I'm a little shocked. I thought you boys are spiritual. You spend all your time studying Torah. I see how excited you are about, a, about, a, about having a turkey dinner. I'm a little disappointed. For example, take myself for example, he says. I eat, you know, ribeye every night and I don't get excited. I think, you know, I'm very calm about it. Why are you guys getting all excited? <laughs> the wise dean of the yeshiva responded, he says, you know what the difference between you and the yeshiva boys are? Take away the turkey from them. They got excited. Easy come, easy go. No turkey, fine. It's not the end of the world. But try taking away your ribeye steak from you. Yes. <laughs> we'll see how calm you'll be. We'll see how excited you'll get. Because the reason he's calm is because it's so much a part of him. He's so into his pleasure. He's so into his luxury. That if God forbid you remove his luxury... You know, he's, he gets all excited. It's his life. It's his luxury. He lives for it. So there's a person who's very calm. You don't see any excitement on the surface. But the reason is because it's pleasure. Pleasure means it has become part of you. It's your life. It's very deep. Pleasure is much deeper than excitement. When a person who's excited is because it's something really foreign to you, external to you, so it's something novel to you. So you get excited. But pleasure is very deep. It's, it's not a novelty become part of me. You luxuriate, you enjoy it, you savor. Try taking that away from you and we'll see what real excitement is. So this is the person who's like water, very calm. It's like water. Water is very calm until you try stopping it. <laughs> try stopping water and the water turns ferocious. The person is very calm, doesn't get excited, doesn't take himself so seriously, doesn't have an arrogant problem. That's not his problem. But it's his issue in life. His challenge in life is that he lives for pleasure. He defines himself by pleasure. He luxuriates in life. He wants to enjoy every part of it. And he dwells in it and focuses in it. That's his, that's his 
way of expressing his ego. His will to live and his self-preservation is, his sense of self is expressed through pleasure, deep pleasure, enjoying the pleasures of life, indulging in life, indulging in all the materialistic pleasures of life, not leaving out anything in life, making sure to indulge in every last pleasure that life offers. That's his crux that he has to bear. And then, Thus the appetite for pleasure derives from the element of water. Frivolity and scoffing, boasting and idle talk emanate from the element of air. Like air, they lack substance. So this is compared to gas. person filled with gas, air. There's nothing there. At least the person who's prideful, the person who's arrogant, but at least he has a reason to be pride, be arrogant. He's accomplished, he's motivated, he's driven, he's wealthy. He did something in life. So he has at least a reason to get angry, to be prideful, to suffer from a superiority complex. A person who's indulging in pleasure, okay, at least he's doing something, he's indulging, indulging in this world. Then you have a person who's like filled with gas. There's nothing there. There's no substance. The person who just yentives all day, just enjoys talking and gossiping. And there's no substance there. It's just a person, an empty head. We call it an empty head. You know, we... Um, we suffer a lot from it in America recently. All the, the earheads and the, and the talk show heads and people just talk and talk and talk and talk and just enjoy talking and ploppling and yentering and, and hacking and chinik and you know, nothing to say and, and just, uh, just talk endlessly and hours and hours. Just not windbags, really nothing to say. You know, a person of substance measures every word. He doesn't open his mouth unless he has something, something real to say, unless he thought about it very well. He's not going to, you know, take up your time or waste your time. But then you have a person who, the way of expressing his ego is through gossip, empty talk, boasting, speaking nonsense, and um, frivol- frivolity, you know, there's a place for humor, but then there's a person who's just frivolous. You know, everything is just frivolity, and everything is a joke, and everything is, you know, it's not a serious person. Nothing is serious. A man, there's no substance there. A person who just wants to go through life just by using his oral skills and just talks his way through life, jokes his way through life, talks his way through life. In a way, this is one of the most saddest, saddest expressions of ego. His way of expressing his ego is just by faking his way through life and breezing through life without really accomplishing anything of substance. Talking about others, boasting about himself. And um, so that's, that's the person who suffers from excessive gas of ear in the spiritual sense. And then... And sloth and melancholy emanate from the element of earth. Earth is characterized by heaviness. A man encumbered by sloth and melancholy likewise senses a heaviness of the limb. So this is the opposite of the man of fire, the man of arrogance, of pride, of the person who suffers from a superiority complex. This is a person who suffers from an inferiority complex. This is, corresponds to solid, to earth. The person who comes to the psychiatrist and he says, uh, Doctor, I suffer from an inferiority complex. Doctor examines him. He says, "The good news is you don't suffer from inferiority complex. You are inferior." <laughs> but the a person who feels that he's inferior, and a person who feels 
suffers from laziness. He's not motivated. He's not driven. He could be very talented. But just as a heaviness, everything is difficult. Difficult to carry things through. Difficult to accomplish things. Difficult to move, to change. Just lazy and just laid back and procrastinates and just wallows in self-pity and is depressed. and There's just no energy. There's no life. There's no energy. The person whose fire is filled with fire. There's life. There's no, there's no laziness. There's no... Um, that person has energy, has drive, is accomplishing things. While the person who suffers from, whose ego, self-preservation, expresses itself through, through heaviness and... Um, like the quality of earth, this is a person who struggles. It's very difficult for him to accomplish anything, to move forward, to change. A person who has a very sense of sadness in the sense that he suffers from inferiority complex. He feels that there's something wrong with him. And that hinders him. Because when you feel that there's something wrong with you, not that you've done something wrong, but that there's something wrong with your being. I am wrong, not I did something wrong. When you sense that I am wrong, you lose all motivation. You lose all energy. You have no energy to move, to change, to try, because it's hopeless. I am no good. And the slightest thing throw, throws that person off. The slightest obstacle, and the person loses heart, loses his energy, and just rolls up in bed and um, you know, stops living. So this is, this is a very difficult thing to deal with. A very difficult, in a way, it's even more challenging than the other person. The other person was arrogant, but at least there's a life there, there's energy, you can do something with that person. But a person who's like spiritually dead and melancholy and sad and tragically sad and depressed and I am no good and what difference can I, do, can I make and, and why even try and why even bother, it's very difficult to accomplish any, anything with this person. But in a sense, it's really also an expression of pride. Don't think the person who's melancholy, who's depressed, is any less prideful than the arrogant um, one who suffers from, from uh, superiority complex. Because in a way, it's like a hidden sense of pride. The person feels there's no one like me in the world. I'm worse off than anyone else. There's no one in the world like me. I'm, a, I'm in a unique situation. And therefore, I am different than everyone else. And I am superior in his own way, he's superior to everyone else. In his own distorted way. So it's his way of expressing his pride or his uniqueness. That, that in a way, he's special. His problems are special, more special than anyone else. No one ever suffers what he has suffered from. And so in, in a way, it's, his quiet, it's a quiet, resigned way of, of expressing his own pride. But every person has pride question is how you express it. So one person expresses it overtly. This person expresses it covertly. Well, I'm very quiet. I'm very shy. I'm very quiet. I'm sitting in the back. <clears throat> pride? What pride? But the truth is, he's also filled with pride. He's very defensive and prickly. So the person, it's just, it's just covert pride. So this person also, this is his way of expressing his own ego, by sensing that the a sense of hopelessness and, and heaviness and um, very difficult and laziness, sloth, 
very difficult to move or to change. And it just drags you down. Like gravity just drags you down. Everything is difficult. To make a little movement is a whole to-do. The other person is motivated, is driven, moves quickly, and he just the opposite. Every tiny movement is so difficult, and you get stuck so easily. So this is, this is his way of expressing his own ego. So although they all suffer from the same, these are all expressions of ultimately the ego, the sense of I, the sense of self. But how a person senses his I and senses that sense of self varies depending on your personality and your character, which way your personality and character are rooted in. In fire, energy, in gas, air, water, liquid, or pleasure, or in earth, in solid, heaviness. And um, it's very difficult, or almost impossible, for a person to change your personality. You know, a type A person will always remain a type A person. A person who's introverted will remain an introverted person. A person who's extroverted will remain an extroverted person. But how you utilize your personality type that's up to you. You can work on your personality and you can, you can express, use your personality type in a very positive and wholesome way. Every type of personality. From the person who's hard-charging, the person who's motivated and driven, his leadership quality, he can use his, his type of personality in a very positive and wholesome way. The person who's into pleasure could also use that personality and characteristic traits in a very positive way by deriving pleasure from Torah and from mitzvot and from wholesome things. The person who is very introverted and is very heavy and, and could use, you can utilize that personality and characteristic traits also for very, very positive, positive things. A person who um, feels very broken inside very sensitive and very broken inside and shattered inside, that could lead a person to tremendous, tremendous heights and greatness. Because a person who's always seeking and searching feels unsettled inside, is a seeker, is a searcher. That's a person who's, who has, is open to accomplish great spiritual things. While the person who's very self-confident, overly self-confident, I mean, is, is, is more limited. Because the vessel to receive holiness is when your heart is broken. Your heart is shattered, your heart is broken, you can open yourself up to tremendous, to very high levels of spirituality and godliness. So all of these characteristic traits could be utilized for positive. Self-confidence, could be utilized for very positive. Gives you the confidence to go forward, not to be impressed with those who laugh at you, to go forward confidently and to do the right thing, despite all the obstacles. A person who's very broken inside and shattered inside and suffers from inferiority complex, if you can use that brokenness and shatteredness to look very deep inside and to discover very, very deep and very intense and very powerful, very high levels of godliness, it could lead a person to tremendous height. 
But what he's saying here is that instinctively, before a person works on himself and tries to harness his personality traits and characteristic traits for a positive, wholesome way, but naturally, instinctively, we are born with egos. We're born with healthy egos, with the drive for self-preservation of I. And that ego will naturally express itself in many different ways, depending on your personality type, on your characteristic type. A person who's born like fire, comes from the element of fire, who's naturally arrogant and over-self-confident and driven and motivated and ambitious, he'll express his ego in a very arrogant way, in a very egotistical way, in a prideful way, in, in, in an angry way. A person who is born with a, a, an inclination for pleasure, for very deep pleasure, will gravitate towards indulgement, indulging and, and sucking the pleasure out of life and enjoying every aspect of, of, uh, every aspect of life. And the person who has a tendency toward gas and just, just the empty head, the ear head, will express his ego in that way, in that frivolous, foolish, foolish way. And the person who has an inclination towards introspection and self-doubt and being so overly self-critical and being overly depressed and, and lazy and, and constantly blocking your own movements and blocking your own growth and, and uh, suffering from an inferiority complex, really feeling and believing inside that you're inferior and therefore overly cautious and overly afraid and overly fearful and therefore that stops you from going forward and blocks your spiritual growth that he'll express himself through being cautious and lazy and depressed and, and uh... so these are all natural expressions instinctual and natural expressions of your ego and your ego type everyone has to decide which one <laughs> describes himself the best if not all. <laughs> but which one primarily? Are you more fire type, more water type, more gas type, or more solid type? Everyone knows their own peckle, their own challenge. Everyone has to answer only to themselves. But this is an interesting way of helping you understand yourself. Knowing your nature, your instinct. That's who you are. That's your personality. That's your character. You can't pretend you're otherwise. It's very rare that an introverted person will become an extrovert, or an extrovert will become an introvert. They'll always remain essentially at the core. They may learn to acquire social grace, but at the core they'll always retain that introversion. That's where they thrive, that's who they really are. Well, an extrovert will remain an extrovert. And interesting, many extroverts are brilliant minds, but they simply have no interest in, in reading and thinking it's just, it's just not them. They enjoy being gregarious and social. That, that's where they thrive. They just, they just don't thrive by lying down for five hours or reading a book and contemplating it and thinking about it. It's just not them. They can have brilliant minds, but it's just not them. While a person who's introverted, that's what he enjoys. He enjoys just curling, curling up in bed and just reading and thinking and you know, locking himself away for a weekend and just reading and reading nonstop. It's just, you have to know your personality, you have to know your character. It doesn't make, there's nothing wrong. You have to know your personality and character. And instinctively, your ego challenge will vary depending on your personality type and characteristic type. But now he continues, from this soul. From this soul stem also the good traits inherent in every Jew's character, 
such as compassion and benevolence. But since this is a nefesh of klipa and evil, how do good characteristics come from it? Okay, so he's saying by the Jews, by the Jewish people, the Talmud says that there are three signs of a Jew. They're compassionate, they are embarrassed before the truth, and they do kindness. It's a fact that Jews are are uh, disproportionately represented in all of the charities in America, from saving the whales to saving the penguins, whatever it may be, (laughs) Jews are disproportionately represented in all of these charities, because Jews by nature are charitable, are just we inherited this trait from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That trait of kindness, of being sensitive to another person, to the suffering of another person. It's a, it's a natural thing. Of course, a person could choose to go against his nature. A person could choose not to be kind. But by nature, the Jews are just very kind. They're the kindest people. They're the first ones to respond any call for help. Um, you know, it's Jews are always the first ones. Of course, they're, we're the first ones to help, whether it's the Vietnamese or the Colombians. But the reason why we're helping them is because we're Jewish, because we have that instinct, that nature. Even, even without any great spiritual work or effort, it just comes natural. There's a sense of a natural tendency to help and to be kind and to be compassionate. Um, but the question is, if a person is motivated by ego, by self-preservation, by I, why would my I, my self, be motivated to help another person? My ego is only interested in myself. So where does this natural, instinctive uh, tendency come from? How is it that the Jew has this natural instinct to help other people? and to be sensitive to their pain, and to really feel and identify with their pain, and to empathize with their pain, and to be motivated to help them. Where, where does this come from? And he's saying it's natural and instinctive. When naturally and instinctively, the only thing that's natural and instinctive is ego. I, self-preservation. There's six billion people in the world. No one has this natural, instinctive feeling. But with the Jewish people, this is the most natural thing in the world. It's the most instinctive. We even offered to help our enemies. The earthquake in Iran, we offered to help. They said, no, we'd rather die than receive help from Jews. And now in Egypt as well. So, but this is instinctive. Because this is our nature. We're here to help. It's just we, we feel pain. Another person's, another human being's pain. We feel their pain. And we're compassionate. And we're ready to help and do something about it. It's just our nature. Not necessarily from any godly instinct because we're godly people, because this is natural, instinctively, without any effort. We're just born with this trait. It's a trait. Every nation has a characteristic trait. This is the characteristic trait that distinguishes the Jewish people. They're kind, they're compassionate, they're mostly liberal because they're kind and compassionate. And yeah. instinctively, instinctively, uh, this, is, this is our instinct. So he explains, where does this come from? If the ultimate, the core drive within our natural soul animal soul, ego soul, is ego and self. So where does this instinct come to empathize with another human being? So he explains, for in the case of the Jew... In the case of the Jew, this soul of Klippa is derived from the Klippa called Noga, which also contains good. And the good within this nefesh gives rise to these positive natural traits. This Klippa is from the esoteric tree of knowledge, which is comprised of good and evil. 
Okay, so the, the, the shell from which the Jewish soul derives from is called klipat noga. There's type, different types of shell. There's a shell like a grape, the shell of a grape, which it's see-through. You see through the shell. So you can see the inside. Even th- so it doesn't totally cover up on the inside. Some of the inside peeks through, seeps through, and you can see it. Then you have the shell of a nut, a peanut, which is totally, totally covered up. And you have to crack it open to even access the inside. So the, the shell of a Jew has some good, some of the inside automatically is transparent, is see-through, comes through. So it's a combination of good and evil. What that means is that naturally we have a genuine, a genuine instinct to, um, to help another person. We feel their pain. But at the same time, we are egotistically motivated. I want my name. I want a nice plaque. I want recognition. I want fame. I want acknowledgement. I want covet. I want honor. So it's a combination. It's a mixture of good and evil. I'm doing something good out of a genuine sense of empathy. But it's a combined with ego. I'm doing it for egotistical reasons. Makes me feel good. I want my name on the wall. I want acknowledgement. I want that. So it's a combination of good and evil. So it's not good which is holy. A good that's holy is a total, purely selfless good. There's no ego involved. I'll give it anonymously. The, uh, the person's not doing me any favors. On the contrary, the person senses if I have the merit, I'll be the instrument to do something good. God will use me as his instrument to do something good if I'll have the merit. It's done with humility, with, uh, with, uh, you know, with, uh, with uh, humbleness. That's a good that comes from holiness, that comes from effort, from selflessness, from, e- from egolessness, from godliness. A good that's rooted in godliness, because God is good to me. Everything I have comes from God. My life, my health. Therefore, I in turn have to be godly and godlike and in turn give to those who are less fortunate, share my wealth with others, not mine. It all comes from Hashem. This is a good that's rooted in a, in a deep recognition of God. It's God-centered. But this kindness that we're discussing here is not rooted in God-centeredness. It has nothing to do with God. It's just an instinct. A Jew by nature is kind. It's a characteristic trait of a Jew. A Jew by nature, and that's how you know he's a Jew. A Jew is not kind and compassionate. You have to suspect maybe he's not Jewish. Because that, that's, just the, that's just the Jewish nature. A Jew by nature is kind and compassionate and considerate. And it's not because, I'm not even thinking about God. It's just as a Jew, I feel the pain. The, the, the pain of the Cambodians, the pain of the Vietnamese, the pain of the... Everyone's pain, and I'm there to help. So it's coming from a good place. It has some mixture of good, but it's egotistically motivated. It's not because I'm doing it because of God. I'm even thinking about God. I'm doing it because it makes me feel good. It's, I'm going to be recognized. I feel I'm doing something good. So this is what he calls a combination of good and evil. Versus the good, continue, the bottom of 45. The souls of the nation of the world. The nations of the world, however, emanate uh, from the other unclean uh, telepaths which contain no good whatever. Uh, as it is written uh, in Etzchayim, portal 49, chapter 3, that all the good that the nations do is done out of selfish motives. Since their nefesh emanates from telepath which contains no good, it follows that any good done by them is for selfish motives. So the Gemara comments on the verse. The kindness of the nation is sin. That all the charity and kindness done by the nations of the world is only for their self-glorification. 
When a Jew acts in a benevolent manner, he is motivated mainly out of concern for the welfare of his fellow. The proof of this is that were his fellow not to need his help, this would give him greater pleasure than the gratification derived from his act of kindness. Concerning the nations of the world, however, this is not so. Their motivation is not the welfare of their fellow, rather, it stems from a self-serving motive, the, the desire for self-glorification, a feeling of gratification, and the like. It should be noted that among the nations of the world, there are also to be found those whose souls are derived from Kelhat Noga, called the pious ones of the nations of the world. These righteous individuals are benevolent, not out of selfish motives, but out of a genuine concern for their fellow. The Sugiharas of the world, the... Uh the um, Ralu Wallenbergs of the world, there are righteous Gentiles um, whose soul do derive from the, the shell that's illuminated, that's transparent, that's a combination of good and evil. But he's talking about the majority, the majority of human beings are motivated by ego, by self. Now, that part of that self, there's no n- natural instinct to do kindness, to do good. It could be a decision that you make, an intellectual decision, that I'm an intellectual, and therefore intellectually I have to care for others. And that's a decision I could make. But it's not something that comes naturally and instinctively. And there's a big difference. A motivation, a kindness that comes from goodness, from genuine goodness. It's not about me. It's about the other person. I feel the pain of the other person. If the other person doesn't need my help, I'm very happy. Thank you. Mazel tov. But if the motivation is not because I really want to help the other person, I really care less about the other person, I really couldn't care less about the other person, but it's part of my being a whole person, part of my uh, sense of self, that I am an intellectual, an intellectual has to care about people, it's not about you, it's about me. If you don't let me help you, I'll be very angry. How dare you don't let me help you? And many times, many of these people are not helping, they're actually (laughs) harming Because it's not really about you. If you really think about the other person, you really think what's really good for them. What's good for them is not what it appears to be good for them. But if it's not about the other person, it's about me, then it's all about appearance. I have the appearance that I care about these people. And therefore I'll make double standards and I'll introduce things that are lies and deceptive and not true and I'm really harming them at the end of the road because at the end of the day I'm doing more harm than good. But who cares? It's not about them. It's about me. I show that I care, I'm a caring person. Do I really care about their interests? Am I really thinking about their interests? How will I know, how will that person know that he's not a phony and a fake and he's just getting a degree because, because it's just a quota? How will, I, how will that person ever have in his own life that sense of genuine achievement? Am I really caring about the other person? It's really about me. I can feel that I am doing something right. You have to be, it's a very subtle thing. We have to be very careful. I'm just using this as an example. What is the motivation here? Do you really care about the other person? Is it really about that other person? Is it really about me? If it's about me, it's what, what may appear to be good. What appears to be, I'm standing up for the, for the simple person, for the low person. Am I really standing up for that? Do I really care about the simple person? Or it's just the image. It's just I should, In my own mind, I should have the image of I'm an intellectual and I'm a liberal intellectual person. Therefore, I care about people. When in truth, I couldn't care less about people. And we have so much of that phoniness going around. You know, people delude themselves that they care about other people. 
and the same breath, they, they do more harm than good, and they really couldn't care less. They really couldn't care less about the other person. It's not about the other person, it's about me. My image, my stature, my ego, my wholeness as a, as a, as a full person, I have to be a person with this such a liberal position. But it's not really about the other person. So this is the difference between genuine kindness, genuine goodness, where I really care about the welfare about the, for the other person. But it's, it's mixed with ego as well. I'm motivated by ego. I like the self-satisfaction. I like the honor. I like the fame. I like... But mixed in there, there is some genuine sense of the other person's pain. Versus, it has nothing to do with the other person. I'll never forget there was an interview with the Danish minister. Denmark is very much in the headlines these days. They saved the Jews during World War II. They all put on the Star of David, Danish king, and, and um, they ferried them out of, out of, out of Denmark. And um, they interviewed this minister who risked his life during World War II to save Jews. And they asked him, why did you do it? Why did you risk your life? The Germans had nothing against you. Why did you risk your life to save the Jews, to ferry them out? His answer was fascinating. He said, you know, it offended us to see Jews treated like dogs, worse, worse than dogs. It offended our sense of humanity. We couldn't watch to see Jews being treated worse than dogs. It was very interesting. It had nothing to do with the Jew. <laughs> it offended them. It offended me, he said. I, I, if you're really listening to what he's saying, it's not about the Jew. And if the Jew would refuse his help, he would get very angry. It's not, it's not about you. It's about me. It offends me. It bothers me. I need this. It's not genuine kindness. Of course, he, they saved the Jew's life, and who cares what his motivation is? If you help a poor person, who cares what your motivation is? The bottom line is the deed is done, and you've saved a person's life, and they saved the Jewish community. But if you, if you, here we're talking about subtleties. We're going, we're going a little deeper into all of this. The Talmud is talking something very deep, very profound. If you look subtly, what is the motivation? Is the motivation ego? Kindness could be purely motivated by ego. It's all about me. It offends me. Nothing to do with you. I couldn't care less about you. It's me. It offends me to see human beings treated like dogs. Therefore, that, that's not kindness. From our definition of kindness of goodness, which is holiness, which is selflessness, anything connected with God and godliness and selflessness, this kindness we call sin. Because what is motivating it? What's motivating it is all ego. It's purely ego. Nothing to do with the other person. There's not an ounce of genuine empathy for the other person. Versus, goodness begins when there's something egoless, selfless. When you're able to empathize with another person and feel that other person's pain. That's the instinct that each and every Jew is born with. Instinctively. Not something you have to learn or acquire. It's part of, if you have a Jewish soul, you have this nature of empathizing with another person, feeling their pain, and just being kind-hearted. And then you have the ultimate level of holiness, of kindness, which is purely selfless, purely godly. It's God-oriented, God-centered. Because you're doing a godly thing. And there's not a trace of ego here. It's not about, you're not mixing any ego. It's all about helping the other person. And if I can have the merit, I should be the one to be the instrument through which God is doing kindness to this person. This is Abraham's kindness. This is purely holiness, pure holy kindness, good kindness, selflessness. 
a kindness that goes beyond your nature, beyond the limits of your nature, beyond just satisfying, you know, giving you self-satisfaction, a kindness that's rooted in, in, in righteousness and justice and truth. That's, that's, so you have three levels of kindness, pure, holy kindness, the kindness which is every Jew is born with naturally and instinctively, which is a combination, a mixture of good and evil, ego and selflessness. And then you have a, a kindness that's purely egotistically motivated. If you, if you analyze ego deep down, very subtly, where is this coming from? It's all ego. It's about self. Nothing to do with the other person. Self-preservation. Either I'm offended or because I want to be, I have this image of being a liberal, complete intellectual, therefore I have to care about other people. But you don't really care about the other person. It has nothing to do with the other person. If you were honest with yourself, you would acknowledge the other person has nothing to do with it. Because if the other person refuses your help, you'll be very offended. You'll be very angry. Because it's not about the other person. It's about me. You're depriving me of my kindness. How dare you turn away my kindness? What will be a Jew's response? Thank God he doesn't need my help. Offended? I'm very happy. Because I really care about the other person. So again, we're talking about something very subtle. When we say that ego is sin, that the non-Jew, the kindness that he does, with those exceptions who are righteous Gentiles, is sin, what we're describing here is the basic core of every human being, which is ego, self, healthy ego. The world doesn't see anything wrong with ego. The world doesn't see anything evil in ego or negative. The Jew does. The Torah does. Because the ego is already a distortion. It's already off. It's already a con, a cover-up, a shell. It's the other side. It's split off. It's disconnected. The whole foundation is wrong. The whole underpinning of this whole foundation of your life is wrong, is off, is, is a distortion. Because the only thing that's rooted in reality, the only ultimate reality is that there's no other reality but God. This is the meaning and definition of holiness, of goodness. This is a novel interpretation of good and evil. You're not going to find this interpretation of good and evil in any culture, in any society in the world. No wonder why the rabbis cried when they had to translate the Torah. How are you going to translate these subtle terminologies into English or into any language, for that matter, when these concepts don't exist? So when you say, you translate the Talmud literally, that a non-Jew is evil, look at this racist Torah, look at this racist Talmud, look what the Jews think of Goyim. But nothing could be further than the truth. There's nothing wrong with a non-Jew. The non-Jew is being human. There's nothing wrong with being human. God created a human being. By definition, a human being is someone who has a healthy ego and wants to preserve his existence. And everything that he does in life is motivated by that ego and there's nothing wrong with it for him. But God gave a Jew something entirely different, a Jewish soul, which we're going to learn in depth next week. That's what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. We have a piece of the divine essence which is motivated by godliness. It has a whole different re- perspective of reality. It's coming from a whole different place. And that's our definition of holiness, of goodness, of kindness. Does kindness of the Jew and kindness of the Gentile, can that come both from, uh, from, bo- from both uh, from uh, God 
and from the ego. Can the, can the, can the Christian or the Goy have kindness that emanates from God and emanates from his ego as well as the Jew? That's what he said in the last paragraph, that amongst the nations of the world there are what we call the righteous Gentiles. Those rare individuals, those few exceptions. Their, the, soul, the root of their soul is from the tree of knowledge, combination of good and evil. So they do have some, some transparency, some connection to God. So in their kindness there is a mixture of good and evil. We would hope that in today's day and age there are a lot more of such people, more of such righteous Gentiles, who do have a genuine sense of empathy and kindness, which is a combination, like you said, a combination of good, God, and, and ego. Um, but they are special individuals. We do come across those, those individuals occasionally. And um, you could almost say in... It's almost like a, you find usually those Gentiles, usually, genuinely love Jews, are not anti-Semitic. They genuinely respect and love the Jew because you know that there's a godly connection. That they have, they, they, they're those, those souls of righteous Gentiles who just are in awe and are amazed. And they were throughout history. You had the, the Tolstoy's of the world, the Mark Twain's of the world, who just loved or in awe of the Jew. So you know that they had some of that, the Paul Johnsons of the world, you know that they have that, that, that connection. They, you know, they, have, they see something that eludes most people. Most people naturally, instinctively, uh, you know, maybe hate the Jew because, because ego hates the Jew. The Jew is godly and ego senses subconsciously that the Jew is the enemy. Because the Jew doesn't respect the ego, per se. You could be brilliant, you could be... But we don't respect it, per se. The only thing that we do respect is if it's connection, any connection to goodness and to kindness and, connection, and a connection to godliness. So instinctively, the ego feels threatened by the Jew. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.